welcome to the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. OuterLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Today, we are going to present an introspective analysis on Abraham Lincoln, considered by many to be the greatest president in the history of the United States. Let me say that I believe that Mr. Lincoln is the worst president in the history of the United States by far. A couple of reasons why would be the fact that he provoked and presided over the U.S. Civil War. 650,000 Americans in the North and the South died. You tell me that there was no peaceful solution, that the only solution was to resort to American on American killing each other. I think that is horrible leadership and that should put him at the bottom right away. Another reason why is because Lincoln ordered his generals to target southern civilians and commit war atrocities against them. Another reason would be because of the war atrocities committed against Native Americans. People don't realize that in the course of Lincoln's presidency that there were atrocities committed against Native Americans for land. Another reason why was because Lincoln suspended habeas corpus. To give you a quick story, a history lesson about habeas corpus, it's the legal procedure that keeps the government from holding you indefinitely without cause. So Lincoln suspended that. That is not the act of a president. That is an act of a dictator. And if you think about why the U.S. was founded, the Constitution is a total – that's a total affront to the Constitution. And for those of you out there that think I'm crazy and they're saying, well, no, Lincoln was very pro – uh, pro freedom and he, he really supported, he was a hated slavery. Let me just read you an excerpt from his inaugural address of 1860. Lincoln says, I have no purpose directly or indirectly to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states for which it, for where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so and I have no inclination to do so. So this is the man that many consider to be the great emancipator. This is the man who many people credit with uh, ending slavery. This, it's crazy. It's really crazy. And let me leave, read a couple of quotes that I pulled from Lincoln. By the, it's called I pulled these quotes from the collected works of Abraham Lincoln. Special thanks to author Thomas D. Lorenzo, by the way. Quote one: What I would most desire would be the separation of white and black races. Volume two, page five twenty one, quoted by Abraham Lincoln. Okay, another gem of a quote would be free the blacks, make them politically and socially our equals. My own feelings will not admit to this. We cannot make them our equals. Volume 2, page 256, quoted by Abraham Lincoln. Does that sound like somebody who was against slavery? That sounds like the words of a white supremacist. I know people are, are crazy. Like, well, how could you say this? He's the greatest president. He's the great emancipator. You know what I think Lincoln is? I think he's a sacred cow. And when I see a sacred cow, I look at it like a pinata that needs to be busted open and investigated. And there are too many quote-unquote sacred cows, not only in American, American history but world history, that we need to examine. Because I think that a lot of the pain and suffering and misunderstanding of our culture today is a direct result of millions of people not challenging sacred cows and seeing them for what they are. As far as our analysis on Lincoln goes for tonight, there are some positive analysis on him. There are some that are going to present him in an unflattering light. But it is up to you to decide. The Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show 
is fearless when it comes to going after the truth. There are no sacred cows, and we're going to find the truth wherever it goes, wherever it lies. The Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show proudly presents an introspective analysis on Abraham Lincoln. Joining us today is Thomas J. DiLorenzo. He's a professor of economics at Loyola University, Maryland, and author of The Real Lincoln, as well as several other books. You can learn more about Mr. DiLorenzo by checking out many of his articles on lourockwell.com. Mr. DiLorenzo, welcome to the program. It's a great honor to have you with us today, sir. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be with you. Okay. Mr. DiLorenzo, I want to tell you that when I read your book, The Real Lincoln, it was such a colossal eye-opener. I have to say that the way you questioned Lincoln's legacy actually caused me and our show to question a lot of other people. So I want to congratulate you on a book that was well done, well written. And that's not the first book you've written about Lincoln. You've written another one as well. So there's a lot of people out there that say, oh, well, Lincoln was the greatest president. If you could think of three main reasons why he is not the greatest president, what would you attribute those three reasons to be? Uh, well, one, one, I would say uh, if you study history, you see that the whole world ended slavery peacefully in the 19th century. The British Empire, the Spanish Empire, the Danes, the Dutch, uh, the Swedes, everybody uh, who had uh, slaves ended it, found a way to do it peacefully, except Americans. And so, uh, and so I think uh, Lincoln's greatest failure uh, was to do what all the rest of the world did and find a way to end slavery peacefully. And I never bought the idea that uh, southern slave owners were sort of the most barbaric people on earth compared to the British slave owners or the Dutch slave owners or anybody else. And, uh, and so they all found a way to get rid of the evil institution peacefully without a war. And of course, uh, uh, slavery, ending slavery was not the purpose of the war. If you read the, uh, the United States Senate's war purposes resolution or Lincoln's own words, he always said his purpose was to save the Union. And uh, there's a famous uh, letter he wrote to the newspaper man, Horace Greeley, where he said, if I could save the Union by freeing no slaves, I would do that. If, if I could save the Union by freeing some slaves and leaving under others in bondage, I would also do that. And so it was the official policy of the government that that was the purpose of the war. And then slavery was brought in, brought in in the middle of the war after the north side of the war was losing after the first two years as an issue. But uh, that was not the purpose of the invasion. And so I think his uh, second um, biggest failure was he uh, he waged an illegal war, uh, and I'll explain why it was illegal, that ended up uh, with as many as uh, 800,000 dead Americans according to the latest research. For for many, many years, historians said the number was more like 600,000, but uh, the, the newest research says it could have been as high as 800,000. And uh, and so uh, and that's at a time when the, the population of America was about one-tenth of what it is today. If you can imagine that, it would be the equivalent Incredible. of 8 million people dying today. And uh, when I said it was illegal, uh, because if you read Article 3, Section 3 of the U.S. Constitution, which defines treason, it says uh, it uses the word only. It says it's only defined as levying war upon the states, or giving aid and comfort to their enemy. And, and there is the plural, of course, meaning the individual free and independent states, as they're called in the Declaration of Independence. 
And that, of course, is exactly what Lincoln did, is he levied war upon the states, the southern states. And so it was a, the textbook definition of treason, and therefore illegal and unconstitutional uh, to do that. And, of course, uh, the third thing I would mention was the illegal suspension of the writ of habeas corpus and the mass arrest of tens of thousands of northern civilians, newspaper editors, the mayor of Baltimore, Maryland, uh, uh, 20 or so members of the Maryland legislature, almost anyone in the north who was critical of the government was subjected to imprisonment without due process. And he even deported a member of Congress, a Democrat member of Congress from Ohio named Clement Vallandigham because he was the most outspoken critic of the Lincoln administration in Congress. That's pretty amazing. One thing I've always been curious about, Sidney Lorenzo, is how did Lincoln pull off an incredible PR feat? He did all these things he just mentioned, which are considered great affronts not only to fellow Americans but to the U.S. Constitution, and yet he's regarded as one of the best presidents, if not the best president. How does he win that PR battle? Why is he perceived and viewed so favorably in history? Well, he didn't. He had nothing to do with it. Uh, during his own time, there was a there was a, a book written a, a couple of years ago, maybe about five years ago now, called "The Unpopular Mr. Lincoln," and it was by a historian who looked at uh, all the uh, primary sources of newspapers, magazines, and everything of the time, and he makes the case that uh, Abraham Lincoln was uh, America's most reviled and hated president during his own lifetime. Of all the other presidents we've had during his lifetime, and uh, you, you know the Southerners hated him, mm. you know, most of them, and, but most Northerners, too, because of some of the things I just mentioned, military conscription, you know, we had the first federal military conscription law where, you know, you know tens of thousands of men were forced to fight in this war, and many of which uh, you know, died, and that was the first time we ever had a federal military conscription law, and the shutting down of over 300 opposition newspapers in the northern states and the mass imprisonment of dissenters, you can understand why he would be despised uh, by the people during his own lifetime. But it was only after the war was ended that the Republican Party, with the help of the New England clergy primarily, turned Lincoln into a secular saint because they wanted to... uh, they wanted to claim that whatever the government did from then on, the government which they controlled, was virtuous. Uh, there's even there was even a book about this written by uh, you know the famous author Robert Penn Warren, who wrote All the King's Men, a famous novel. He wrote a little book in 1960 called The Legacy of the Civil War, and uh, one of the points he makes was that after the war, Lincoln was turned into such a, a deity by the Republican Party propaganda machine that they made the argument for generations, and they still do, that anything the American government does, especially in foreign policy, is virtuous by virtue of the fact that we are doing it. And, it, and it's all based on this this, uh, this myth of Abraham Lincoln. I'm curious why more Americans, or why that wasn't a greater pushback against his policies. When you think about it, how early Lincoln came into power, considering how young the country was, you had a lot of people that were well aware of the rights, which I don't think that you, you have nearly as many people today as fully aware of the liberties that they, they were having. But then it seems like they, they were really aware. Why weren't more people rebelling against that, and why wasn't there a greater push to call Lincoln out on these atrocities that were committed against the U.S. Constitution? Well, he, he behaved like a dictator, and in my book I even quote pro-Lincoln historians as calling him a dictator, but they say he was a benevolent dictator. 
And, uh, you know, when I give public speeches about this, I, I ask people, uh, you know, which part of the U.S. Constitution allows for a dictatorship? You know, name it for me. And, of course, you know, it usually gets a laugh because it's not true. But you can find these um, politicians or historians who called him a, a uh, benevolent dictator. But, for example, there were New York City draft riots in 1863, in June of 1863, right after the famous Battle of Gettysburg. And when the government started seriously enforcing the draft, and it sort of picked on New York City more harshly in enforcing the draft than other places, because New York City was a hotbed of opposition to the Lincoln regime. And so there were draft riots, and Lincoln sent 15,000 soldiers directly from the Battle of Gettysburg, and they shot into the crowd, and they killed hundreds, maybe thousands. Nobody seems to know how many people were died uh, at the hands of the uh, the U.S. Army shooting into crowds of draft protesters. And it was a violent draft protest. They were setting fires and, and, uh, and the lynchings and all sorts of horrible things were going on. But I think that sort of show of uh, brute force uh, intimidated a lot of people. Uh, Lincoln also intimidated the judiciary by when, when Roger B. Taney, the Chief Justice of the United States, issued an opinion that his suspension of habeas corpus was unconstitutional. Lincoln actually issued an arrest warrant for Judge Taney. Incredible. And, uh, and he apparently couldn't find a federal marshal who had the guts to go into the chambers of 80-year-old Justice Taney and drag him into uh, Fort McHenry, which at the time was a, a prison for uh, dissenters to the Lincoln regime. And so uh, and, and I, I write about this in my book, Lincoln Unmasked, actually, in more detail about how one of Lincoln's uh, employees uh, uh, named Lehman, he was a lawyer who worked in the White House, said this. Uh, the mayor of Baltimore sa uh, said this, that he knew about this in his memoirs because he was a friend of Justice Taney. And also Benjamin Robbins Curtis, the, chief, the justice of the Supreme Court, who wrote the dissenting opinion in the famous Dred Scott case, also said that he knew about the arrest warrant for Judge Taney that had been issued. And so... The Lincoln administration intimidated the judiciary. They intimidated Congress by deporting the leading Democratic opponent, Clement Vallandigham of Ohio, and they intimidated draft protesters by shooting them. So that's a good, those are good reasons why there wasn't um, any more resistance. Jeez. So, D. Lorenzo, you would mentioned earlier in the beginning of our interview that slavery was on its way out and that all other nations except for the U.S. were able to end it peacefully. At the same time um, of Lincoln's presidency, you had cited in your book, The Real Lincoln, that he had massacred many, many Indians and Native Americans. And I'm wondering, do you think that because so many Native Americans were massacred and because Americans apparently had no problem with it or they weren't outspoken about it, that it was going to be next to impossible or if not would take a longer period of time for Americans to come to the realization that slavery was morally wrong because of this moral you know, atrocities committed against the Native Americans. I mean, could, they, could you actually see it happen? If, if Americans were not massacring Native Americans, could you have seen Americans coming to the conclusion that slavery was morally wrong quicker? Oh, I don't know. Well, I think everybody understood slavery was morally wrong. Even uh, there's this famous letter, at least among uh, historians, uh, that Robert E. Lee, you know, Robert E. Lee inherited slaves uh, from his, through his wife's family. His his wife was a descendant of Martha Washington, and uh, Robert E. Lee's wife, and she inherited slaves from the Custis family. That was the family name, Custis. 
and uh, and Robert E. Lee freed those slaves in the middle of the war. And there's a letter he wrote to his daughter saying that uh, slavery is a, a moral and political evil wherever it is practiced. So everybody understood it was immoral. You, you didn't need to convince people that it was uh, that it was not a, uh, an immoral thing. And the question that uh, a lot of people have been debating since the time of Thomas Jefferson is what, how to go about ending it, what what to do. And but we did, uh, you know, the, the great tragedy as I see it is um, they had a roadmap. They, they they could have done what the British did. The British actually used tax dollars to buy the freedom of all the slaves and then outlawed the whole you know, whole practice altogether. And so they eliminated you know, the only opposition to it would have been. Uh, you know, primarily the uh, uh, the owners, the slave owners, they're the ones who benefit from the slaves. But, you know, the hillbillies who got drafted into the Confederate Army, they didn't benefit from slavery. They didn't own slaves. In fact, they uh, they competed. You know, they were yeoman farmers and small merchants uh, for the most part. And uh, slavery was bad for them because uh, they, they competed as farm laborers with uh, free labor. Uh, by the slaves, and so they they would have been better off. You know, the the people who populated the uh, the ranks of the army of the Confederate Army would have been better off without slavery. And of course, slavery slave labor is inherently less efficient than free labor, because a slave has no incentive to be productive or to acquire skills or to accumulate skills because there's nothing in it. You're, there's no benefit for you. And so, uh, you know, just from an economic perspective. Slavery uh, had to be propped up by government, which it was with such things as the Fugitive Slave Act, which forced Northerners to run down runaway slaves and return them to their owners. And that was a that was one thing that Abraham Lincoln was very strongly in support of. He enforced the Fugitive Slave Act during his presidency, and even in his first inaugural address, he very strongly supported the Fugitive Slave Act, which was a, a subsidy to the slave owners. You've also mentioned in your book, The Real Lincoln, about the numerous atrocities that were committed against Southern civilians ordered up by Lincoln during the war. You also discuss the brutality and the way the South was treated during the Reconstruction. I'm curious to know if that had not happened, if we had never had the Civil War, you'd never had what went on about the atrocities, that Americans, especially in the South, would have basically come to a more peaceful understanding of each other, like we wouldn't have had to have the U.S. Civil War, uh, Civil Rights in the 1960s. Do you think that people would have had a much greater, more peaceful understanding of race without this, that a lot of the resentments that we currently have in our country can actually be dated back to generations of people being brutalized by the North and what Lincoln did? Uh, yeah, well, I, I grew up, I was born and raised in Pennsylvania, and I always thought it was absurd the notion that uh, that uh, Northerners at the time, you know, the descendants or the ancestors of the people that were who were around me in Pennsylvania when I grew up, uh, were willing to die by the thousands for black strangers in Mississippi. It always sounded just absolutely preposterous to me. And I, in my book, I even cite Tocqueville, the famous book Democracy in America, where he. He says after his tour of America, he thought, it's, oddly enough, he said the, he called it the problem of race was worse in the, worse in the North than it was in the South, because in the South there was there was a lot more familiarity between the races. They lived among each other for hundreds of years, even at that point, and uh, they were familiar with each other. And so, and so that's how Tocqueville himself came to that conclusion. 
And, and uh, I think and one of the points I make in my book is that I quote a, a one of Lincoln's uh, officers, a general named Piatt, P-I-A-T-T is how he spelled his name. Mm-hmm. He was a newspaper editor in Washington, D.C. after the war. And he said that you know, the way in which the Army treated the Southern people, and especially during Reconstruction, when they disenfranchised the adult white males in the South for a period of time, and then registered the vote, all of the uh, adult uh, ex-slave male ex-slaves, and used them as sort of political pawns to vote for uh, higher taxes and, and, and more government spending that ended up doing nothing, basically, for the Southern people, but was pretty much confiscated by the, the so-called carpetbaggers of the Republican Party hacks that went down south and basically plundered the south for 10 more years after the war. And he said, you know, if that hadn't happened, there never would have been a Ku Klux Klan or and there never would have been the Jim Crow laws and all these things that happened uh, after the war. In fact, these you know these laws are restricting the uh, voting rights of black people and, the, and their their mobility and their and their their ability to become citizens. Those originated in the North. The black codes were were in the northern states first, and it was the Republican Party who that ran the South for ten years after the war that implemented all these black codes. That turned into uh, you know you know 50 years of institutionalized discrimination, you know, more than 50 years of institutionalized discrimination against the black population of the South, and then once the federal army left, you had all these uh, the black people uh, were left uh, over number outnumbered uh, by a white population that wanted revenge for how they uh, behaved during Reconstruction, and in that. And, uh, yeah, it's a good point that that might never have existed had uh, we not had the war. Mr. DiLorenzo, as a historian, somebody who's very exceptional insight on the past, present, and the future of the United States, where do you see the United States heading? Do you think that we will have a series of countries, a series of states leaving the union because of you know an economic calamity if we have a, a dollar crash or uh, for some other reason do you think that the United States will ultimately stay together or do, do, there are a lot of indications and signs that are here that would lead you to believe that the U.S. will eventually kind of dissolve and be a separate series of states and then there's a two part to that question the second one is does it also bother you that President Trump has repeatedly said that Abraham Lincoln is the president that he admires most? Uh, well, no, all Republican presidents are required to say that, and so, uh, <laughs> even if even if they don't know what they're talking about, so their speechwriters tell them to say that. And you know, and, and you know, how could you go wrong by saying I like Abraham Lincoln? You know, and, and so it's always good for uh, you know, pr- good for press publicity to, to say things like that, because the average American I found knows nothing at all about Lincoln other than. A few slogans that were all taught in elementary school about how he saved the Union and freed the slaves, and that's yeah. it. You, know, you never, never read a word about him other than, than that, and that includes a lot of our presidents, apparently. <sighs> but, uh, but yeah, I think uh, it might not happen in my lifetime, but I think uh, we, we will see uh, a separation. Uh, just look at the country the way it is uh, today. Uh, you know, there's, I think I read recently where one-third of the adults in California said they would vote to secede from the Union, and they could create their own country. I don't know, call it Obamastan or something like that, and then have their own country. But uh, Thomas Jefferson thought in his day, before he died in the 1820s, 
that uh, the country was already too big to be governed by one government, and he thought it would be broken up into a New England Confederacy, a, a Middle Atlantic Confederacy, a Southern Confederacy, and a Western Confederacy. And in his day, the West was Ohio. And so, and, he, and Jefferson said, uh, they will all be Americans, and they will all be our children, and we would wish them all well. And, uh, you know, contrast that to what Lincoln said about secession. It was pretty much uh, keep paying federal taxes or die. Uh, this is sort of the ultimatum he made in his first inaugural address, where he said, it's my duty to collect the duties and imposts, which meant tariffs, which was the main force of federal revenue. And then he said, but beyond that, there will not be an invasion of any state. So he literally threatened a military invasion of any state that did not collect the federal tariff tax, which had just been more than doubled uh, two days earlier uh, before he was inaugurated. And so, uh, but Jefferson was totally different on that. He thought it would be a good thing if the government were to become more decentralized. And, uh, you know, just look at the calamity that we have with uh, 330 million people in one government. It's crazy. The same number of uh, members of Congress that we had 200 years ago, basically. Uh, it's, it's not working. I don't think so at all. Mr. Thomas DiLorenzo, I want to thank you so much for your time, sir. And in addition to your books about Lincoln, you have a new book out that came out this year it's called The Real Problem of Socialism. And you write about the 10 reasons, the dirty secrets of socialism on lewrockwell.com. I think your articles are very insightful, and I have to give you a lot of credit, Mr. DiLorenzo. You take a considerable amount of information, and you simplify it, and you really present a lot of um, great facts. So I want to tell you how much we appreciate you on all the work that you've done, sir. Well, thank you very much, and uh, thanks for the interview. Joining us now is Frank J. Williams, the retired Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Rhode Island, and one of the country's most renowned experts on Abraham Lincoln. Mr. Williams, what do you feel, in your opinion, made Abraham Lincoln a great president, and why do you feel that Americans should be grateful that he was the president? Well, I believe, uh, Ryan, thanks for calling in for uh, close to his uh, 206th birthday tomorrow, February 12th. It, it all comes from his character, and as Winston Churchill said, all the other characteristics of a person come from uh, his character. Lincoln had great political courage. He had uh, empathy for people. He was resilient. He never gave up. Uh, he was a great writer, a master writer, considered um, a literary genius even among English people, uh, people who teach English in our country. So there are many reasons. And, and I'd like to think in view of our recent past, which has not been great historically for leadership, is that he was effective. Uh, he got things done. It's not just great to be um, uh, or terrific to be a good writer uh, and a good speech maker, but you've got to be, um, you've got to get results. And he did. And what would you say would be the greatest sacrifices? Like why should each American, you feel, be indebted or have gratitude for him that he was the president? Well, because he gave us so much, uh, so much of himself to the effort to to reunite the country and also uh, obtain final freedom of of those in, who were in involuntary servitude, slavery, and he was really the last casualty, wasn't he, of the of the Civil War on when he was assassinated on April 14th in 
died uh, the following day, April 15th, um, 1865. So we have much to um, admire and respect and I think uh, try to follow and emulate because he, um, he was the paradigm, I think, for political leadership. Okay, I'm curious to know as to if slavery was something that was really important to him and something that he was very passionate about, why is there no mention of him um, talking about the evils of slavery in his first inaugural address? Because he hoped that, um, and we're taking this out of context, of course, Ryan, because he had hoped that they, he could save the Union or the Union would not dissolve, even though when he took the oath on March 4, 1861, there had already been seven states that had seceded. So he used a carrot and a stick approach. Look, I'm not going to interfere with slavery where it already exists. So he did mention it as far as that was concerned. But you cannot secede. This is a compact of states. And we uh, contracted to stay together unless everyone else agreed that you could leave. And no one has done that. So I think that's that's the tack he took. I think it was naive because it was too late. You know, you know, Ryan Lincoln w was a great mediator. He was doing alternative dispute resolution before that term was ever coined, and that's what I do now. I do a lot of mediation, and I can relate to him. And if he could have mediated the problem, then uh, he would have. But it was it was it was simply too late, and it may have been too late when that first boatload of slaves arrived in Jamestown, Virginia, in 1619. And do you feel, from your perspective and everything that you've studied about American culture, American history, that there needed to be a war to unify the country? Do you feel that the North and South would have eventually maybe merged together without having to go to war? Were they, well, that, far, were they uh, that far apart? Well, yes, and and I've given that a great deal of thought, as I think many many people have, and I'm 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 afraid to admit that it was it it was necessary in order to purge this land um, of of a great inequity that was so diametrically opposed to the principles and vision of the Declaration of Independence and even the Constitution which was in conflict because it protected slavery, even though it never mentioned the word, that it was bound to, to erupt into what occurred to be such a great, a horrific um, event, resulting in 750,000 uh, lives north and south. That, those are just the soldiers, not even the, the civilians. So, And that, by the way, is the equivalent, the equivalent of 7.5 million people today. But I'm just curious to know that all these other countries throughout the world, except for the United States, appear to have abolished slavery in peaceful terms. Why, why was a violent war so necessary? Because the South and those slave owners and those uh, who spoke out for states' rights, which really meant the perpetuation of the institution, uh, would not compromise, would not give up on um, the, um, the prohibition that the Republicans and President Lincoln had against the expansion of slavery in the territories. You see, they thought this, they, they saw that election of Lincoln and that Republican policy as a great threat. It was because it would lead to the ultimate extinction of slavery. Those are Lincoln's words, probably occurring 
around 1900, and they they would not stand for that. This okay. this was this was economic suicide for them. Okay, and the one of the last questions I have is this: I'm curious to know why so many people view Lincoln as a great great president when there are instances of historical record of him suspending habeas corpus of you know having his generals assault and maybe murder southern civilians that weren't even involved in the war effort at what point do you define his goodness overtaking the negative aspects about it i mean isn't that um something that would alarm you that you would have a president that would suspend the constitution in order to preserve the constitution that's a very good question ryan and many people ask about that especially with any diminution of civil liberties since we really declared a war on terror after September 11, 2001. But the Constitution does permit the suspension of habeas corpus. That is the right to have your arrest checked by a magistrate. Why are you being detained? And that, that right having been suspended. The Constitution does permit it in cases of rebellion and when the public safety requires it. And you've got to remember, Lincoln was a lawyer, and he was also the lawyer in the White House. And that writ was very important to him, but also was saving the Union, and then ultimately saving the Union and final freedom. And he took, um, he, ha he felt as, as the chief magistrate that to uphold his oath, which was sacred to him, to see that all of the laws were, were followed and obeyed, he had to curtail civil liberties. And it wasn't just the suspension of habeas corpus. Many civilians, U.S. citizens, over 4,200 of them, were tried by a military tribunal uh, in, in having, their, having their right to check, um, their, check their um, suspension and their arrest really abrogated. But you see, towards the end of the war, when he saw victory, Union victory, and the Republicans and the Congress favoring the 13th Amendment, what became the 13th Amendment, outlawing slavery, he began to loosen up and advised his generals in the field to not suspend the writ of habeas corpus because he wanted a return to those processes, the civil liberties that we hold so dear in peacetime. Mr. Frank Williams. Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Rhode Island, I want to thank you so much for that great interview about Abraham Lincoln. It was a real pleasure to talk with you, sir. Well, likewise, Ryan. Anytime, uh, and and uh, great wishes to all of your all of your listeners. Thank you. Right now, we're going to play a brief clip from Judge Andrew Napolitano. He is Fox News' senior judicial analysis. He's the youngest tenured Superior Court judge in the history of the state of New Jersey. He is also the author of seven books in the U.S. Constitution, two of which have been New York Times bestsellers. This is Judge Andrew Napolitano's perspective on Abraham Lincoln, taken from an interview he did on C-SPAN. Um, you know, the usual historians say, look, these were other times. You have to forgive them this. They at least uh, helped uh, create a Constitution with a Bill of Rights. Uh, you're more merciless on... Lincoln, who you called the tyrant, could you describe his back and forth with the border states and his position on slavery and what the real cause, you believe, of the Question. Civil War was? Question. Did the Emancipation Proclamation free the slaves? Answer. It established 
and permitted slavery in the border states. You really have to read the document mm-hmm. before you can understand that. Question, was Abraham Lincoln interested in freeing the slaves? No, Abraham Lincoln said, I, I don't care if we have slaves or not. I just have to keep these southern states in the government because my job is to keep the country together because we don't have an income tax. And if we don't collect duties from the ports and most of them are in the southern states, we can't. We can't have a federal government if that money is not coming in. Look, Lincoln arrested 3,000 journalists and publishers and editors in the North. These are not guys with guns shooting at federal soldiers. These are people arrested because of their words, because of what they said about the war. And he had them tried before military tribunals, every one of which was invalidated after Lincoln's death by a Supreme Court that he had just appointed that said the Constitution exists in good times and in bad. When the legislature of Maryland was about to enact legislation he didn't like, he sent troops to arrest every single legislator. He argued against uh, the right to secession, but he caused West Virginia to secede from Virginia so we could have two more senators in the in the Senate and more representatives in, in the House of Representatives. He was the most tyrannical, uh, most disingenuous, least faithful to the Constitution president we've had in American history. His troops burnt courthouses, raped women, robbed banks, killed civilians on a large scale for the first time in the history of the world, all in the name of a defensive war. Joining us now is Mr. Chris Dwayne, previous guest on the Outer Limits of Interest Radio Show and founder of SilverShieldExchange.com. Welcome to the program, Chris. How are you? Good. It's good to be here with you. Thank you. Chris, as a person who studies American history and studies world history for that matter, what can you tell us about Abraham Lincoln? Um, he's probably the worst if not uh, one of the worst, but if not the worst president the United States has ever had. Uh, the deification of Abraham Lincoln is totally unjustified and is pushed forward by those who worship the state and federal powers to dominate those of uh, the states or the individual. Um, and they put up Lincoln on this pedestal as a uh, saint to uh, to justify just about every other illegal action, unconstitutional thing that has been done you know, for the last 200 years of this country. And uh, I think I think uh, Lincoln should need, needs to be reexamined and, and see what he really uh, did. Okay. Now, anyone listening to that who's grown up their entire life thinking that Abraham Lincoln was the greatest president in the world is probably going to be shocked, and they're going to want to know, as I'm curious to know, why would you feel that he is the worst president of the United States? What made him – what actions did he do that made him the worst president of the United States? <laughs> Uh, you mean besides the fact that he uh, presided over a war that killed 650,000 Americans, uh, a war that would be the equivalent of 6.5 million Americans in this population that we have today, uh, a war to end supposedly slavery, which he had no intention to do, um, a war that uh, you know brought about the suspension of habeas corpus, uh, that shut down free speech, the arrestment of uh, Northerners, Southerners, whoever stood in his way, uh, the amount of debt that was created uh, to support this war for a totally unnecessary war. Why did the entire Western civilization all around this time period, France, England, Spain, uh, many other nations, get rid of slavery without a total uh, atrocious abomination uh, of war? Uh, A war that was started by Lincoln uh, by uh, causing a 
um, an event down at Fort Sumter uh, where the South Carolinian said would be the line in the sand, and he went ahead and ordered that very thing that would cause the South Carolinians to fight back, uh, a war that ended the American Revolution, a war of voluntary alliance between states now that no longer existed. It is now a federally dominated uh, you know, uh, country um, that broke apart everything that was fought for the United States. Um, I, I think he, and then, and then to have this justification, this glorification, this worship of him, uh, I think, uh, you know, allows for future presidents, Bush and Obama particularly, to just trample over the Constitution while they hold up the uh, effigy of uh, Lincoln as being this great emancipator. Okay, so you're saying because his actions, what? made all the states centralized, it was centralized on one federal power, that that action in, in itself was, what, a grave assault on the Constitution, and that would what, speak volumes about this person's character? That he yeah, would. I mean, that's just, that's, you know, a very fundamental reason what this, uh, what the American Revolution is founded for, that was a very fundamental reason why the Constitution uh, existed in the first place, that's what we fought against with centralized power. Uh, dominating local power uh, that the that we saw with uh, the revolution, um, but to me, I think the most un, uh, un unforgivable act is the actual uh, war itself, and the amount of uh, deaths and casualties and debts that were racked up, all in the name of what uh, you know this this power to for the federal state to uh, dominate all the other uh, you know states around there. You know, and some say that the you know he's uh, you know freed the slaves. Uh, Lincoln had very little intention on freeing the slaves. This was an economic war, uh, one in which the northern power that dominated the uh, Washington, D.C., and the industrialization of it uh, was becoming weaker to the economic power in the south that had uh, relied upon uh, commodities. They passed a, uh, an act um, against the importation of uh, British finished goods into the United States, and the British uh, very calculated responded by uh, 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 raising tariffs on southern imported go uh, goods, uh, thereby double benefiting the northern industrialists that were behind uh, Lincoln. And, um, yeah, I mean, there, there's so much that could be said about him and, uh, you know, one that uh, <laughs> I, I, don't, I, don't get, I don't get why people worship this guy as much as they do. Yeah, well, everyone – a lot of people say, well, he wrote the, the Emancipation Proclamation. He was the one that was most responsible for freeing the slaves. And I was wondering if you can please elaborate a little bit more as we talked a little earlier today about just about how every other nation on earth was able to end slavery without that. Do you think that America would have eventually ended slavery as a result of just pressures? To oh, absolutely. Why do you think – Yeah, I mean it – why do you think it would have because, ended? Because I mean, that's just—it's the same thing. There's a, a conscious evolution that happens over time in humanity, uh, where former, you know, uh, evils that exist are, are thrown to the wayside of history. Um, you know, if you, you know, uh, you know, hundreds of years ago, it was, uh, uh, you know, only the Pope could uh, speak the truth, and everybody had to bow down to him, and they were sent off to wars with the Crusades, and then, and, you know, the king became the. Uh, you know, rightful, godly owner. And then, you know, the American Revolution cast that aside and said, no, power comes from the people, not from uh, some divine power, some, you know, higher up power. Um, you know, and much in the same way that, uh, you know, the rest of the world got rid of slavery. They didn't have uh, massive civil wars to, to, to get rid of slavery, you know, all around the world. 
you know, slavery was dying on its on its own because of the moral, the conscious, the industrial revolution that was happening, where it was no longer needed to have uh, this, uh, you know, this amount of slaves. And um, you know, I I know that uh, this would have happened over time. Uh, you know, would it have happened as quickly as it happened? I, I don't know, but. Uh, nobody can tell me that the death toll, the 650,000 Americans that died uh, in our most bloodiest battle, a brother against brother, uh, you know, is a justification for, you know, ending slavery. Okay. Do you feel, is there anything positive about Lincoln's character that you admire? Or yeah. Uh, yeah, there was the one thing that I, I would uh, definitely give him credit for uh, was the introduction of the greenback. The greenback was a totally fiat-based, non-debt-based uh, currency that uh, he was forced to circulate because the bankers that were behind uh, this war and profit off of not this war, but all wars, um, were seeking to get uh, 20, 30 percent returns on, on the debt that they would have to be produced in order to sustain this war. Uh, war. And uh, Lincoln, to his, to his credit, um, opted not to do that and instead circulated a completely fiat currency that they just printed up out of nowhere, not backed by debt, uh, which is totally uh, different than what we have with these Federal Reserve notes where every single dollar that comes into existence is backed by a dollar's worth of debt and interest that needs to be paid back, which can only be paid back by accruing more interest, which is why we have this you know, constantly expanding exponential debt that will keep growing until the dollar and the economy built around it collapses. Uh, Lincoln introduced the greenback and, uh, you know, was able to finance a war based off of nothing, um, which is certainly better than a war based off of debt. Uh, after Lincoln was shot, of course, uh, his greenback experiment was put down uh, and the bankers reinstituted a debt-based currency and continued to rape and pillage the uh, economic uh, America that was, uh, you know, suffering from a war. So behind all of these wars, behind all of uh, not just Lincoln, behind every single war, you could always look towards the profit motivation uh, that the Anglo-American empire has uh, so richly benefited off of uh, throughout history. I mean, the reason why we went to war with uh, Saddam Hussein is because, uh, you know, he was selling his oil for euros as a direct assault against the petrodollar. Um, you know, there's so many examples, uh, and ultimately comes down to the debt and death that, uh, you know, motivates and, and perpetuates our paradigm. Chris, thank you so much. That was a really phenomenal, great interview. And no problem. Guy, anyway, to learn more about Mr. Dwayne, you can go to his website at silvershieldexchange.com. Thank you, Mr. Dwayne. Joining us now is Samuel Wheeler, research historian at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum in Springfield, Illinois. He also has a Ph.D. in U.S. history. Welcome to the program, Mr. Wheeler. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Welcome. Mr. Wheeler, what can you talk and describe from your perspective about Abraham Lincoln? Why is he so historically relevant from your perspective? Well, that is uh, the important question. Um, Abraham Lincoln is the most significant president in American history, one of the most significant Americans uh, we've had in our history, and one of the most significant leaders in terms of world history, and I think we can sum it up in three reasons. Number one, he has a very inspiring life story. Um, it gives us a bit of an American mythology 
Um, he embodies the American dream. He went from the log cabin to the White House. Um, very inspiring life story. But number two, why he's so significant, it's under his tenure he helped bring an end to a 250-year institution of American slavery. He helps bring about the end and uh, of that institution and uh, liberates 4 million American slaves. And then the third reason that we think he's the most significant president in American history and has significance in terms of world history, he saved the Union. Um, he uh, maintained that uh, the results of a free and fair election in the election of 1860 had to be um, 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 uh, saw that, uh, had to be uh, upheld, and just because a minority party in the South objected to those um, uh, results, uh, that wasn't um, reason enough to um, uh, walk away from uh, the American system of respecting free and fair elections and representative government. Um, that has significance in terms of American history and keeping democracy alive and well and uh, representative government and What's interesting to me is uh, freedom fighters, folks that are fighters for democracy from around the globe, um, from Lincoln's time to our own, um, still hold up Lincoln as an example. Okay. How do you respond to the historical records of Abraham Lincoln suspending the Constitution, shutting down newspapers, and rounding up some people who didn't agree with him politically and jailing them? Do you feel that that was the actions that he took over there were justifiable in essence that he would suspend the Constitution in order to preserve the Constitution? Is that something that you would disagree with, those actions? Right. The uh, suspension of civil liberties is one of the most controversial um, actions that Lincoln um, undertook during the American Civil War. From his perspective, he certainly thought that those were justified. He was um, living through um, some very unprecedented times of a, re a civil insurrection, a rebellion. And remember that the Constitution does give the president the right to suspend the, the writ of habeas corpus, or it, gives, it opens the door to suspending the writ of habeas corpus in terms of um, civil insurrection, but the Constitution leaves it a little bit vague over who exactly has that power and what is the process. That's sort of where we get hung up. Lincoln um, takes that right into his own hands because he thinks, you know, the um, the circumstances are absolutely necessary to take um, uh, such action. Um, criticized for it heavily by some of his opponents, um, certainly becomes a campaign issue uh, for Democrats during Lincoln's lifetime. Um, but then remember that the United States Congress uh, comes along and uh, they uh, uphold Lincoln's actions and suspend the um, uh, civil liberties as well. Um, there's been a lot of um, studies done on Lincoln's action as it um, revolves around uh, civil liberties. Uh, Mark Neely um, has done some real pioneering work um, in uh, that regard, and it's uh, appealing to us because of the 21st century uh, realities that we live in today. Um, and so definitely a controversial aspect of uh, Lincoln's presidency. He believed that he was justified, and we continue the historical debate today. Okay, and as somebody who's you know really studied Civil War, expert on the Civil War, when Lincoln first announces that he's going to, uh, that is his intentions, was it met and embraced 
very heavily and warmly in the North. Were the northern states warm and open to the idea of emancipation? Where there, was there a lot of fear and trepidation amongst the northern states that having these slaves suddenly free, that they would you know, extract vengeance upon uh, their former owners? And was the North necessarily unified on the same page against slavery the same way Lincoln was when he first announced it? Was there some you know, whole people rebelling against it? It's a good question, and in the 21st century, it's important for us to remember that opinion in uh, the 1860s was very, very divided. Um, It is a common misperception that folks in the North, by and large, were uh, anti-slavery or abolitionists. That certainly is not the case. Um, Emancipation, when Lincoln makes this a more radical war to actually end slavery, and as Lincoln tries to explain it to folks, um, he's trying to end slavery just because that this is a tactic that he hopes will bring about the reunification of, uh, of uh, the United States. This is a war measure. Um, by and large, he tries to sell it as a conservative measure because he understands how um, radical this notion is and how um, um, unpalatable that action is to many in the North. There are abolitionists. Those folks are a minority in the North. There are anti-slavery folks in the North, much more than um, a a, a radical abolitionist, but there are also um, folks who could care less about the slave system. That's something that happens in the South. There are folks that are um, sort of ambivalent that say, well, you know, the South can have slavery. That's fine. It doesn't really affect our lives here in the North. Um, And so opinions are really all over the board. You have folks like Charles Sumner who are outspoken abolitionists on the floor of the United States Senate. You also have um, extreme racists, as we would think of them in the 21st century that are in the North, um, and everybody in between. And remember that Union soldiers um, also uh, represent all those extremes in opinion. Um, But Lincoln tries to sell emancipation to folks as – If you're on board with wanting to reunify um, the Union, which he thought he had a majority opinion favoring to do so, he says slavery is a tactic that I can utilize to reunify the Union. So if you're for the Union, you better be for emancipation because that's the way to get it as speedy as possible. Okay. At the end of the day, by the end of the war, he gets majority opinion to favor that. Today, many historians and some uh, folks in the United States There is a debate taking place. Is Lincoln rightfully the great emancipator that we've often thought of him, or is he more of a pragmatic, calculating politician that didn't issue this for morality reasons, but uh, more as an act of pragmatism? And whenever you have an either-or, you have to know that the truth is somewhere in the middle there. What do you feel in his mindset were his two greatest accomplishments. Him personally, if you're going to put yourself in his mindset or as close as you can, what do you think that he felt were his two greatest accomplishments and what do you feel he felt, they have felt, were his two greatest regrets as president? Oh, wow, that's a a great question. I'll handle the easiest part first. (laughs) I think uh, his his two greatest accomplishments, I think, um, probably would be the same. if you ask him or you ask historians, then or now. And I think those are simply um, emancipation bringing an end to the institution of American slavery and, uh, number two, uh, saving the Union, keeping the Union um, 
intact. And uh, if you would have asked him at the beginning of his presidency, you know, will you go down as, you know, uh, the man who destroyed slavery, I think he would have uh, thought that the chances of that were uh, were very small. Um, but as he tells us during the Civil War, um, he never doubted for a moment that he would be able to um, preserve the Union. And he very much viewed those as his two greatest accomplishments, and I think uh, for good for good reason. Now, the second part of your question is really tough. His two biggest regrets, my goodness. Um, let's think about that. Um, two biggest regrets is, you know, I'd look at, uh, try to put yourself in uh, Lincoln's shoes and I don't know how much what he could have done about this, but I think something that he uh, uh, regretted and felt badly about uh, was the death toll of the American Civil War. My goodness, 620,000 casualties during uh, four years of war. That was 2% of the American population. If we had a war on that scale today, um, it would be six and, a, six and a half million of us. Uh, wouldn't have lived through the end of that war. Um, I think Lincoln viewed that sort of pain and suffering that did not escape any household, uh, north or south, as something to be regretted. Um, I don't know how he could have done it differently um, to avoid that kind of casualties while still ending slavery and saving the Union. That is a really tough puzzle to try to work out, but I do think Casualties on that scale have got to be uh, something that we all regret uh, immeasurably. Um, what is another thing um, that he might have regretted? Um, I think <laughs> this is something that I think is a, a very real possibility. I think he might have regretted some of his earlier rhetoric um, uh, regarding uh, race, rega regarding equality. You see somebody in 1858 that, uh, if we judge him by 21st century standards, certainly made very racist comments on the campaign trail during the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Now, by the end of his life, he's calling for uh, voting rights for some African Americans. I mean, he's a person who has undergone quite an, a personal evolution by the end of his life, but I think had he lived through the war, had he written a memoir, I think he could go back and uh, look at some of the rhetoric and some of his actions uh, regarding equality, and he might certainly regret um, his earlier positions. Life's all about evolution, and I think one of the lessons for us uh, from Lincoln's life is he was always uh, progressing. He was always evolving as a human. Mr. Wheeler, it's been a real mm -hmm. fascinating interview and a real great talk with you. Thank you so much for your time and for a wonderful interview. And how can people learn more about you? My pleasure. It was very nice to be on your program. I am at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library Museum in Springfield, Illinois. Google us. Find us online. You can uh, check us out at presidentlincoln.illinois.gov. Okay. Thank you so much. Joining us now is Mr. Lou Rockwell, chairman and founder of the Mises Institute and founder of LouRockwell.com. So it is a true honor to have you with us today, Mr. Rockwell. Thank you for being with us. Hey, great to be with okay. you. Okay. So today, a couple of days from now, we're going to be celebrating Lincoln's birthday. 
and a lot of people think that he's one of the greatest presidents of all time, yet you would think differently. Can you please explain why you, you don't think he may not be the greatest president of all time? Well, typically, of course, great presidents are rated by how many people they kill. If you if you start vast wars and kill a lot of people, you're just inherently great. So some of us would have, would have you know, I, I, I uh, myself like the presidents who don't do much, um, much more than a guy like Lincoln. But Lincoln is an extremely important figure because he really is the founder of the current American regime, not those guys in 1776. But there were vast changes during the Civil War, and uh, Lincoln was really, you know, he was, of course, only one man. He had many helpers in this, but he totally changed the nature of of the uh, American government and American society. How do you, do you think the United States would eventually become one nation regardless if there was a civil war, that the North and South would have eventually had their economic similarities and common cultures that they would have eventually decided to emerge or at least had a, a peaceful relationship with each other, that the civil war didn't need to be fought? Well, yeah, of course, of course I think that. I don't think – I mean the, you know, uh, only, the, only Haiti and the United States ended slavery by vast killing. Uh, every other country on earth that had slavery – ended it peacefully. So I think it absolutely was possible to end slavery peacefully. But I don't, by the way, think the Civil War was basically about slavery. I think it was about uh, central power. You only have to read Lincoln's inaugural address, the first one, which is never cited versus the second one, where he says, um, you know, what the problem is the seceding states don't want to pay the taxes, don't want to pay the tariffs. This was the big uh, uh, income-generating item for the federal government. And uh, what he was even said about was losing the tax revenue. So that, uh, you know, it, it had to – was all, and also about sort of the, the mystical union. Somehow the union was a, a mystical force. And, of course, Lincoln himself a mystical figure, uh, treated as a Christ figure, indeed, after his assassination. And still today seen, uh, you know, a guy who sacrificed himself for the people and, and all that sort of thing. Uh, but he was a dictator. He was a warmonger, and um, uh, he he in, in fact offered uh, a Thirteenth Amendment before the Anti-Slavery Amendment to make slavery permanent, if only the seceding states uh, would agree to pay the taxes and and agree to stay in the Union. And of course, there were slave states in the in the Union as well as in the seceding states. And uh, I, I must say, I myself think the secession was a huge mistake. Just because there was no way to win it. I mean, there was the North was the industrial power, and the South didn't have the economic wherewithal. And then the South, once they once they seceded, they adopted all the the crimes of the North. I mean, vast paper money inflation, suppression of free speech and of a free press, suppression of states' rights. There was no no states' rights allowed in the Confederacy. Um, so uh, the whole the whole thing was a horrible tragedy. Uh, we obviously never should have had. A chattel slavery in this in this country. Uh, on the other hand, all 13 American colonies had legalized slavery when they seceded from Britain. When Britain was by and large an anti-slave power, so if you were actually if you thought slavery was the key issue, you probably should have been against American independence. There are actually arguments for that, by the way, that we'd all be better off if the 13 colonies had stayed on a loose association with Britain as versus becoming the world government that it is. Well, what do you think? Do you think that uh, – how do you think that uh, we would have been today if that had happened? Well, you know, who knows, but I think that we, the U.S. would not be 
quite the dominant power that it is. I, I noticed that uh, in the great exchange of letters between Lord Acton and Robert E. Lee after the after the war, that Lee predicts that the results of the of the victory, the Union victory, would be tyranny at home and empire abroad, which of course was exactly right. right. You know, we we had interviewed Frank Williams. And by the way, slavery could only exist because of government. This was not an institution that could exist in, in, in a private society. It was enforced by government. Uh, runaway slaves were caught and returned by the government, by the federal government, and the whole thing was forced by state government. So this is this terrible crime, like the crime of the Civil War. These were government government actions. Do you find it particularly shocking that scholars would say that he's one of the greatest presidents of all time when you think about what he what you just said about you know the freedoms that he repressed and they love the American regime. They love, they're nationalists. They love the government, and uh, they're attached to the government. Uh, oftentimes, employed by the government, paid by the government, the spokesmen for the spokesmen for the okay. government. So they love this guy, who really is the founder of the, of the current American regime of the all-powerful central state, uh, attempting not just run every aspect of our lives. And one of the things you'll notice about the American government, it says it, it believes there are no nothing to hinder it. Mr. Lou Rockwell, chairman and founder of the Mises Institute and founder of LouRockwell.com. Thank you so much. That was a great interview. Really appreciated it. Thank you, sir. Joining us now is Mr. Roger Stone, a longtime political strategist, an alternative historian, and a presidential profiler. He's written several books about presidents of the United States. Mr. Stone... From your perspective, how would you rank Abraham Lincoln among all the presidents? Well, I'm a contrarian. Uh, I uh, think Lincoln was a very great politician. I think he was an extremely manipulative and brilliant politician. I don't think he was a great president. I think that historians largely give him a pass on some of the most egregious contact by any president uh, Lincoln, uh, I think, precipitated uh, a war in which 750,000 soldiers and civilians died. That's more people killed as a result of American military action in one war than all wars combined. The truth is it would have been cheaper, cost a lot less money, to buy the slaves out of uh, slavery and free them without uh, all of the horrific death. I also think that, um, that historians pass over uh, Lincoln's assault on the Constitution. He suspended the writ of habeas corpus. He jailed uh, without trial uh, uh, publishers and reporters who criticized uh, his political positions. Total violation of individual freedom and rights guaranteed by the Constitution. Um, he uh, he attempted to deport the entire black community. His real solution was not really emancipation as much as it was deportation. He wanted to send African Americans back to uh, to Africa. Um, he, uh, he particularly persecuted one of his chief critics, Clement Van Landingham, a publisher, jailed him. They would not allow him to uh, come to trial, never filed charges against him, just locked him up so he couldn't continue to write in opposition to Lincoln's positions. So I don't think Lincoln is as great a president as uh, contemporary historians do. Okay. If you were to, to compare Abraham Lincoln's actions as president, what 
presidents have you examined that you feel are most similar to Lincoln in terms of his actions, in terms of his, let's say, um, attitude towards the Constitution of the United States? You'd have to you'd have to group him with Woodrow Wilson, who um, was another uh, of our presidents who essentially uh, ignored the Constitution. Look, there's an enormous amount of white supremacist uh, rhetoric by Lincoln. The idea that Lincoln was committed to the end of slavery for some moral reason just doesn't stand up when you look at Lincoln's various positions just prior to the Civil War. Like Wilson, I think Lincoln was essentially, uh, he was a racist. He was a white supremacist, and his his primary interest was in the expansion of federal power. The war was an excuse for the for the expansion of federal power. I could also make a case the war wasn't even about slavery as much as it was about the extraordinary tariffs that the Lincoln government was placing on the South, uh, those tariffs being spent by politicians in the North. So the idea that the war itself was fought over slavery and that Lincoln was the great emancipator, I think is great political public relations, but I think it is giving Lincoln a pass on the totality of his complete record. Do you feel that he deserves to be praised and honored the way he is? And do you feel, if you look at the Lincoln the way he is right now, the way people just praise him and think he's this great person, are there other cases of presidents throughout history that get the same type of pass or that are, are praised as seeing as being great when in reality or the way you see it, it's completely the opposite? Well, Lincoln is uh, is because he was martyred, because he was assassinated. Um, he is uh, he is the beneficiary of an enormous um, public relations effort. In this case, he's very much like John F. Kennedy, who we view as a great president, but who in fact had very very few accomplishments. Kennedy's greatness. Um, I think is more based on the tone that he set and the inspirational nature of his words. But for example, on the on the issue of civil rights, he made big promises in 1960, and he delivered on none of them. He didn't even attempt to deliver on them, not wanting to insult the um, the Southern Bloc in the United States Senate. He was very slow on the uptake. Uh, now he had his own vice president, Lyndon Johnson, working against him. On the one hand, Johnson is propping up the segregationists in the Senate. Uh, at the same time, he's telling his boss, JFK, you got to go slow on civil rights and wait till the right moment. Well, the right moment turned to be out to be right after uh, John Kennedy is assassinated and Lyndon Johnson, lifelong segregationist, leader of the Southern Bloc against uh, the poll tax and against uh, anti-lynching laws and against every civil rights measure, does an about-face on civil rights, largely to fend off a challenge from Robert Kennedy at the 1964 uh, convention. So I think, like Lincoln, uh, Kennedy is the beneficiary of a, of a great public relations campaign, but um, a closer examination of his accomplishments would show that he is not that great. Being that we're in the age of information where people can access all kinds of information in a moment in time, do you feel in the next 10 to 20 years that people, particularly Americans, will start to view Abraham Lincoln differently or start to truly question him as well as the other presidents and really try to reexamine their accomplishments and re-question about whether or not 
they are perceived to be the people they have been sought to be propag- sought to be all these years. Sadly, not because of course there are so ma- there's so much literature uh, lauding Lincoln. There are so many books uh, and plays and movies um, that give that lend themselves to this image making. We have, after all, a national holiday for his birthday, uh, which I guess has now been amalgamated into uh, President's Day. But uh, no, I'm actually pessimistic. Uh, there is no one standard text there's not one book which takes a contrarian view of of lincoln now there are several chapters in books by judge andrew napolitano the constitutional uh, scholar who challenges lincoln very lincoln's record very aggressively but it's one book against a million so i i, I think that uh, like with john kennedy History has made its decision regardless of a full evaluation of the facts. Lincoln will continue to go down as one of our greatest presidents, despite his repeated violations of the constitutions and individual liberties. Mr. Roger Stone, thank you. Thank you so much for that great interview. And to learn more about Mr. Stone, please go to his website at stonezone.com. You can see regular updates. Mr. Stone, thank you so much. Okay, everyone, that concludes today's edition of the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Special thanks to our amazing expert roster. There's never been a program on Abraham Lincoln done like this before. This is historical, and I'm so thankful for the people that we had on. I want to give a special thanks, as always, to our virtues, Miss Carrie O'Connor, Miss Lisa Caza, and Miss Constance Dellis. To learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, please go to our website at OuterLimitsRadio.com. Till the next time we meet, my friends. Wishing upon you an abundance of peace, love, and beers. Take good care and thank you so much for listening.